Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I am, as you heard, Amanda Tyler, I'm the Shannon Cecil Turner Professor of Law at UC Berkeley. And it is my tremendous pleasure to sit alongside and welcome to San Francisco a fellow legal scholar and author, Stephen Vladek, who joins us this evening to discuss his new book, which I'll prop up on the table, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Uh, so Stephen has some views. We're going to hear about him tonight. Um, just to give a very little, low key. very low key. Just to give a little bit of background, uh, he serves as CNN's lead Supreme Court analyst and has himself argued multiple cases before the Supreme Court. He is a professor at the University of Texas School of Law and is a nationally nationally recognized expert uh, on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice among other things, among many other things. So welcome, Steve. It's great to be here with you. Thanks, Amanda. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. Um, oh, I have so many wonderful questions and reactions to this great book, which I want to put up for display. Um, it is a fantastic book. I want to start, even though we're going to get very serious very fast, I want to start on a lighter note. That's not a bad, a bad omen, is it? Uh, on the back, there are many wonderful endorsements of the book. They are really great and from leading luminaries who follow and comment on the court. Uh, but long ago, I told you that I thought you should pull the blurbs for the back of the book from Supreme Court justice statements. So can we, you know, sort of like Stephen Colbert does the, the alternative Valentine's <laughs> Day cards. Can we do the alternative book blurbs? What, what might they be? I mean, uh, uh, there's uh, catchy but worn out rhetoric, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Yes, um, that's a good one. Uh, there's uh, an unprecedented effort to intimidate the court as an institution. That's Justice Alito. Um, yes. I think those are, those are the big ones. Those are the big ones. And, and that's, that's what they've said publicly. I, you know, privately might be spicier. Might be spicier. I, you're forgetting when Alito called uh, the, the phrase, the shadow docket, which we're going to unpack, catchy and sinister. Oh, right. Sinister. Yes. yes. I think that should have been on the back of the book. Okay. I mean, I think the cover does some sort of sinisterness for us. It's but, very dark. Uh, I'm, I'm really hoping people walk into a bookstore and think it's like a, a crime thriller. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It, it is, as someone <laughs> is saying from the audience, in some respects. Okay, so let's unpack that. Okay, why don't we start with basics? What is the shadow docket? Yeah, um, it's apparently it's a boogeyman. Um, so it's, it's really nothing more than uh, uh, an evocative shorthand that was coined by a conservative Chicago law professor, Will Bode, who we both know, in 2015. Will was not using it to attack the court and delegitimize it as an institution. Will was using it as just a sort of clever way of describing everything the Supreme Court does other than what we call the merits docket, other than the 60-ish um, big cases the court decides each term only after multiple rounds of briefing and oral argument. We get these fancy, long, signed opinions that tell us what the court thinks and why they've ruled. And I think there's a tendency on the part of the media, on the part of even maybe some of us in the, in the law professoriate, to focus on those as the output of the court. Um, and Will's basic thesis, which was one of those like so obvious you can't believe no one had said it before, is that that's only about 1% of what the Supreme Court actually does by volume. 
and that there's a lot of really important stuff that happens in the other 99%, maybe we should pay attention to it. Um, and so I was like, yeah, maybe we should. Um, and it turns out that, you know, since Will wrote that in 2015, we've seen on the shadow docket through orders that are by tradition unsigned and unexplained, a lot more stuff um, affecting a lot more of us in ways that have been both novel and I think in many respects problematic. So there is so much going on. And one of the really important takeaways from the book is that as many commentators like yourself, like myself, are focusing on the fact that the merits cases, the number of merits cases being decided by this Supreme Court are at an all-time low. We're looking at uh, below 60 decisions on this typical docket where cases are argued and fully briefed um, for now three or four years in this, a row. This will be the fourth term in a row. Which is just extraordinary. Right. Before, before 2019, the last time that it happened was 1864. Right. But as the book highlights, while that's happening, the other part of the story is so much is happening on the emergency docket. And what's happening there is really important. So the big picture question, the other big picture question with which I want to start is, why should we care before we get into the nuts and bolts yeah. of, of what is happening and, and when it started? And, and to that end, some of what we're talking about here people might pejoratively refer to as procedure. Now, procedure is something that we both teach. We think it's incredibly important. We, I'm, I might have some former students in the audience. Um, so we would never use it that way. But, but some lay people might say, this is just about the day-to-day -day machinery of yeah. the Supreme Court. Why should we care? And so putting all that together, why write a book that is very much geared, I want to emphasize, to a lay audience about this. Why, why did you do that, and, and what do you hope people take away from this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of a strange odyssey to try to write a book for non-lawyers about um, the distinction between a stay pending appeal and an injunction pending appeal. Right. Um, and, and I don't know that it succeeds, um, but the sort of... If we think about the shadow docket, there are lots of things that go on it, but the two biggest categories are um, what, are, what we call sort of denials or grants of certiorari, a uh, Latin term, basically that's how the Supreme Court decides which cases to take up on its merits docket, which cases to not take up on its merits docket, and then what Amanda calls the emergency docket, right? This is sort of, it takes a while for a case to get the, to the Supreme Court. What's going to happen while that process plays out, right? Do we want the law to be blocked? Do we want it to be in effect? What's the status quo going to be in the two, three, four years it takes for this case to work its way all the way through the courts? Um, why do we care? So I think we don't have to look very far to see how unsigned, unexplained orders on both of those sets of shadow docket procedures have had massive real-world effects recently. Just to go back to last month, it was an unsigned, unexplained order that kept in place nationwide access to mifepristone um, and medication abortion, and that stayed uh, a nationwide injunction issued by a federal judge in Amarillo, um, my, my neck of the woods. Um, right. Uh, going back a little bit further, it was, a, it was an unsigned, mostly unexplained order that blocked President Biden's vaccination or testing mandate for large employers. Um, it was an unsigned and mostly unexplained order that let Texas's six-week abortion ban go into effect. So part of why I wanted to write the book is because these effects are real and they are effects that we are all feeling. And it seems like it would be useful to educate folks about how these effects are happening. 
to the point about why we should care about process, um, I'm, I mean, there's the Frankfurter line. Only a charlatan would say process matters not, but that's Frankfurter. Um, the, the, the sort of, I think the reason why we should care is because when we think about what gives the Supreme Court its authority as an institution, right? What is judicial power as distinct from political power? The court itself would say and has historically said it is the ability of the justices to provide principled justifications for their decision making. Right. Not that we're going to agree with their principles, but that we're going to agree that they are principles. Um, and, you know, I think Justice Barrett hit on this theme in a speech last year at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. Um, she said, you know, there are some big controversial rulings coming. She knew at this point how Dobbs was coming out, how Bruin was coming out. She said, don't just listen to how the media describes these cases. Read the opinion before you decide if we're partisan hacks. By the way, that was her line, not mine. Um, and, you know, two days later, there's an unsigned, unexplained five to four ruling that puts back into effect a Trump era uh, environmental regulation that made it easier for certain kinds of power companies to pollute navigable waterways where there was no opinion to read. Um, and this is really, you know, the, so, so the book really has sort of two big different uh, um, goals. The first is just to educate everyone about how this happens, about how we get to a point where the court is so often in a position to exercise all of this authority to impose all these impacts through unsigned, unexplained orders. And then the second part is, and here's why in the last six years, this has really run off the rails um, compared to historical precedents, compared to what was true in the past. Well, and, and the book does a great job of that. It starts with a fabulous story about the Vietnam uh, campaign and uh, an emergency order that, I mean, that, that I don't want to spoil it. You need to buy the book to read that. We're, we're going to talk about other things. But it's a Spoiler great, alert, we lost. Yeah, it's, it's a great, well, <laughs> it's a great opening to get you to sort of understand how this could play out um, in, an, in an emergency extremely time-sensitive situation. And they are going to arise, and we're going to talk about that. There, some are just unavoidable. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, as you show, we really don't see a lot of this, except for when capital punishment returns. But then there's a critical tipping point. And so tell us, tell us about that. When do things change, and do we get to a whole book on the shadow dog? <laughs> um, well, that was last week. But um, so, the, I mean, the shift really happens in two phases, and I think it would help to, to do both of them. So, you know, the, 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 the book opens with the story of the Cambodia bombing dispute. And one of the things that the story illustrates is the pre-1980 practice, which was when there was an emergency, the norm was to go to the circuit justice, the one of the nine justices who had geographic responsibility for that part of the country. Right. Um, so for today, for example, the, it's Justice Kagan, who's the circuit justice for the ninth circuit. We're here. For here. Um, and the upsides of that were, were, multi were many, right? One, um, the circuit justice was much more nimble than the full court. So um, he, back then it was always a he, right, could commandeer the nearest courtroom as Justice Douglas was wont to do to hold oral arguments or have arguments in chambers. They could write opinions by themselves. They could provide as close to a full-throated process as possible. Um, and no one would confuse the opinion of one justice for the opinion of the court. No one would think this was anything more than just an emergency one-off resolution. 
Um, that changes in 1980, and it changes in response to the reinstitution of the death penalty, where we see the court move toward having as a norm the full court resolve any remotely divisive application without oral argument. Um, the practice of arguments on emergency applications just stops. Um, at least until last year when we had two, um, and without opinions. Um, and the reason why I think we didn't appreciate this is because it was over there. It was in that surreal, you know, Dadaist painting that is the death penalty. Um, when you clerked on the court, right, that was the, the emergency docket was the death docket. That was it. Right. That was it. And we just traded off nights when executions were scheduled and one clerk stayed back to read what came in and call the justice and wake them up. And you ask anyone who clerked in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, that's, their, that's what they remember about the shadow docket. And then what shifts is in the mid-2010s. Um, I think you can find sort of harbingers of the shift before 2017, but it's really the massive uptick in requests for emergency relief that we see in the beginning of the Trump administration. Um, so one of the statistics that I sort of make a big deal out of in the book, uh, during the Bush and Obama administrations, two very different two-term presidencies, the Solicitor General, the government's lawyer, uh, the most common and I think most relatively powerful litigant in the Supreme Court, asked the court for emergency relief eight times in 16 years, so once every other year. Um, in the Trump administration, it's 41 times in four years. Um, 41 right? times. And, and that's only part of the story because the court acquiesces. The court grants uh, 28 of those 41 applications, either in whole or in part. And a lot of these applications follow the same pattern. Um, a federal court, some of them here in California, some in Hawaii or Maryland or wherever, you know, issues a nationwide injunction against a Trump policy. Um, the Court of Appeals refuses to undo the, refuses to freeze the injunction. And the Trump administration goes to the Supreme Court and says, we should be allowed to carry out this policy for as long as it takes for the case to work its way through the court. Um, and the Supreme Court keeps saying yes. So the border wall, um, right, multiple different asylum policies that no lower court ever upholds are nevertheless allowed to be carried into effect because of these unsigned, unexplained rulings from the Supreme Court. So one of the problems that you highlight, of course, is we don't get an explanation. And to borrow from Hamilton, we know the courts have neither force nor will, only just judgment. As you say, if they don't explain their judgment, if they don't explain their reasoning, that is problematic. But another thing you highlight, just to go back to the border wall example, is it's not just that they don't provide a, a reasoning or a justification. It's that by the, the time the sun sets, there's never any full resolution in the courts of this. Right. So, you know, historically, the justification for this was that the Supreme Court was just preserving the status quo or, or, unpre or unpreserving the status quo for as long as it took the case to get back to the justices. And what starts happening in the Trump administration is the cases never come back, um, either because it takes so long or the Trump administration is really effective in running out the clock that by the time the cases are back in the Supreme Court, the Biden administration has taken over um, and ceases the policies, discontinues them, or because once the Supreme Court intervenes, everyone thinks the writing is on the wall. Um, so this happened, for example, with a bunch of California COVID mitigation measures, where the Supreme Court blocks various COVID restrictions through these unsigned emergency orders. And Governor Newsom says, well, shoot, like, why should I keep litigating cases that it's clear I'm going to lose? And so the, the underlying premise that these are just interim rulings to freeze the status quo, to give the justices time, turns out not to be true in the mine run of cases, where increasingly the justices 
non-explanations on the shadow docket are their only explanations for the entire case. Uh, of all of the Trump immigration policies that end up, at least in some way, shape, or form, generating an emergency application, only one of them ever gets a merits ruling from the Supreme Court, and it's travel ban 3.0. And the rest of them just sort of languish in procedural obscurity. So, you know, what happens, what we see starting in 2017 is the emergency docket becomes a way of making policy without making law, um, where by not explaining themselves, the justices can let the executive branch carry out its policies that may very well be unlawful without any final resolution. And this is where, you know, the... To me, the biggest objection to that is not just that they're unexplained. It's not just that they're having these effects. It's that because they're unexplained, when the next president, who just happens to be from a different party, comes along and makes the same arguments about how my immigration policies are being blocked by nationwide injunctions and I should be allowed to carry out these policies while these cases work their way through the courts, the Supreme Court says no. Um, and they don't have to reconcile the seemingly disparate uh, judgments because there was no rationale in the earlier case. Well, and that taps into one of my questions, which was, uh, which is, what's the big deal? It seems like the Supreme Court has slowed in doing this. Um, so in the last maybe like year, I think it has slowed down a bit. Um, you know, there's there's this. I mean, I, I think if you look at I suspect that when we look back, when we write the second edition, um, I told him he's going to have to because there's inevitably going to be more to say. <laughs> I, I need to write about like Rome, ancient Rome. Um, so um, <laughs> when we look back, I mean, I think it's possible that we're going to see that the high watermark of this practice was the October 2020 term, the sort of 2020-2021 term, because a couple of things happened during the 2020 term. The first is, right, Justice Ginsburg dies right on the eve of the term. Justice Barrett is confirmed to replace her. Um, the court starts intervening in ways it never had with that volume before. So um, I'm going to get really technical for a second. I'm sorry. Um, there are two typical kinds of emergency relief. One is a stay, which is basically freezing the effects of a lower court decision. Um, and one is what's called an injunction pending appeal, which is when the lower courts have not enjoined the relevant government actor. And the Supreme Court says, we're going to do it. Um, and for various reasons, the latter is a more aggressive, more extreme, more demanding form of emergency relief, so much so that in the first 15 years of the Roberts Court, there were four of them. Right. Um, in the first seven months, Justice Barrett's on the court, there are six of them. Um, and, you know, uh, two of them are targeted at New York COVID restrictions and the other four are targeted at California COVID restrictions. And what ha and I think the court gets very trigger happy um, because the other thing that happens during the October 2020 term that we had not seen in the Trump cases is as opposed to using these emergency orders to sort of shape policy without shaping law. Now we also see the court using the emergency orders to change the law. Well, that, I was going to ask about that. So, yeah. Let's talk about SB8, because um, I think that's a great example. So SB8 happens at the end of this, right? So the, the sort of SB8, I actually think it's SB8 that's the end of the high, like the end of the October term 2020 madness. So but, can I say one thing before we get to SB8? Absolutely. So I think <laughs> it's your the, book. Well, yeah. It's your, it's your show. Um, so the... I really the to, to crystallize the sort of the lawmaking part of the story. There's a decision in April 2021. You guys might remember that Governor Newsom at one point um, had a policy, a, a COVID restriction that said you couldn't have people from more than three households yeah. 
in your home. Um, seems like a very neutral, you know, generally applicable law. Um, and it's challenged on First Amendment free exercise grounds because it was preventing pastors from having Bible study. It was preventing, you know, religious gatherings in private homes. Um, the court in April of 2021 issues a very, very short opinion um, on an application for an injunction pending appeal in a case called Tandon versus Newsom, where they actually expand the free exercise clause, where they adopt something known as the most favored nation um, theory of the free exercise clause, which is that if you have a, a generally applicable law that applies, that doesn't, it doesn't target religion, but it has a secular exception, um, it also has to have a religious exception. Basically, if there, there can be any exceptions to your zoning laws, to your whatever, there's got to be a religious exception. The court had never said this before. Now, you guys might say, oh, what? The Supreme Court made new law? Case of prize. Um, right? The problem in this context is that to issue a writ of injunction, the rights are supposed to be, quote, indisputably clear. Right. Um, okay. You guys are like, wow, I just totally lost you. Now... Fast forward to SB8. So SB8 is Texas's six-week abortion ban. And the court— And let's yeah. make clear, this is before Dobbs. Yes, when Roe that was v. Wade is good law when this comes to the court. Roe v. Wade is law. Well, it's— <laughs> Fair enough. It has not been overruled. I, I live in Texas. Um, so, which, by the way, I, I am confronted with every day. Um, so, um, so the SB8 case, um, the law is supposed to go into effect at midnight central time on September 1st. Um, min the, the, the abortion providers in Texas asked the Supreme Court to do exactly what the court had just been doing over and over again in the COVID cases, which was to reach out and issue an injunction pending appeal, to do the same thing that used to be super extraordinary. Um, midnight comes and goes. The law goes into effect. Abortion becomes practically unavailable overnight in all of Texas. Um, and then at 11.58 p.m. the next night, which Justice Alito will later say was two minutes before the deadline that he missed by 23 hours, um, right? The court issues a ruling that says we're not going to block it because there are some unresolved procedural questions about whether you've even sued the right defendants. And this, to me, crystallizes the problem in sort of m multiple layers. First, right, the ruling has enormous effects because it means abortion is just a dead letter in Texas. Um, nine and a half months before, right, Dobbs overrules Roe. Um, second, in the abstract, like looking at history, the court's non-intervention might have made sense. This was not the kind of thing the court used to do. Um, but given how often the same justices had voted to intervene, overriding procedural obstacles, right. right, to enshrine new conceptions of the free exercise clause in the previous six months. Um, the fact that the same five justices say, oh, our hands are tied by these unresolved procedural questions rings more than a little hollow. And indeed, when the court actually decides that case on the merits, four of the five justices who wouldn't intervene say there are at least a couple of proper defendants. Um, so it just, it just looks bad because one would think that the arguments either work symmetrically or they don't work symmetrically. And instead, it looks like the justices are picking and choosing. And this is a part, you know, one of the things in both of those cases, in Tandon versus Newsom, in the SBA case, the vote's five to four. You guys might have heard we have a 6-3 court now, um, right? Chief Justice Roberts, the huge fan of abortion that he is, um, He's dissenting. being sarcastic. That was sorry. Yes, Sar <laughs> just want to be clear. I think they got that. Um, <laughs> so 
why is Roberts dissenting, right, in both of those cases? This is a really important question. Well, he's, so he doesn't tell us then, but he tells us later, right? He's dissenting in these cases not because he's unsympathetic to the bottom line, but because he thinks that the other five conservatives are taking inappropriate procedural shortcuts. Um, and this, to me, is actually the most damning critique out there. Like, you know, people will look at me and say, oh, well, he's just a progressive law professor trying to delegitimize the court. Um, as Justice Alito literally said in a speech. Um, that was awkward, by the way. Um, right? But what about Chief Justice Roberts? Is he a progressive law professor trying to delegitimize the court? I don't think so. And you know, his role in the story, I think, really drives home why this is not just about progressives yelling at conservatives, but this is really about sort of departing in very troubling ways from longstanding institutional norms. So, and I, I thought that also was a really important component to the book, and you bring it in powerfully at the end, the importance of Chief Justice Roberts also being a critic, not just Justice Kagan, right? Um, Alito gave a huge speech about this, and this, this is where he says the critique is, is painting the court, is doing sinister things, it is overblown, you're being overdramatic, uh, I, I could go on and on, but I don't, I don't normally channel Sam Alito well, so I'll stop there. I'm enjoying that. Um, so first question is, have you sent him a copy of the book? Um, no. Um, I, d despite how I'm often portrayed by conservatives on social media, I really don't think of myself as a troll. Um, and, and I really do think that if I sent Justice Alito a copy of the book, that would be trolling. Okay. All right, fair also, enough. you know, he can shell out 21 bucks for the book. I mean, Abs absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, there are so many things I could say about Supreme <laughs> Court justice having money to buy your book, but I'm not going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Um, I could send it to him on a yacht. Our minds are working along similar <laughs> lines. I'll just say that. Um, but can, so can I be serious for a second? Yes. So, so um, I actually think there's real. I, I actually did send Justice Alito a note. Um, after, so he gave the speech at Notre Dame. This is this is where your last question actually I meant to end, which was one of the things that the SB8 ruling does is it really puts the shadow docket on the popular consciousness um, to a degree that it never had been before. Absolutely. Um, you really see for the first time like a lot of coverage in the media about the shadow docket as such. Um, here I am writing a book. I'm like, this is amazing and horrible at the same time. Cool. Um, but so Alito's speech, you know, I think it was actually really valuable to have a justice publicly defend the court's behavior because one of the critiques is that no one's rationalizing the behavior. Um, and so I sent him a note that said, hey, you know, we're not going to agree about, I think, almost anything. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you for giving the speech. Um, and he wrote back and said, basically, we can at least agree that the nationals suck. Um, which he being a Phillies fan, I being a Mets fan, that worked out great. That's um, okay. Common ground. Exactly. So, but I, I think the, the, the large point is that like, his sort of defense of the shadow docket, I think, is really useful because it's so superficial. Um, right? His defense of the shadow docket is, oh, we, we, you know, uh, these fell on our head. We didn't, you, know, you can't blame us for the fact that there were all these applications um, as if the denominator dictates the numerator. Um, right. He says, um, we've always had this, um, right. You know, we haven't, nothing has changed. And like, well, here are the receipts to show you the things that have changed. Um, we, we issue rulings late at night because we're trying to meet deadlines, right? Well, the SB8 case, they missed the deadline by 23 hours. Um, right. Um, 
in the New York uh, COVID case right before Thanksgiving, right? The parties had asked for a ruling by 5 p.m. on Friday. They ruled at 11.56 p.m. the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, right? Um, the following Wednesday. So, right, I mean, like, when those defenses are made public, people like me can actually say, here are the receipts for why that's not true. Alito says, right, one of the critiques is that these are precedential. They're not precedential. And I'm like, here's the order where you chastise the Ninth Circuit for failing to follow your unsigned, unexplained decision in South Bay 2. Like, you know, receipts. Um, and so I think like, it's actually useful to be able to say, like, here's the documentary evidence um, for why what the, your defenses are actually unavailing. The larger point there is look how much easier it is to have this conversation, to have this debate when we're actually providing rationales. So I want to push back a little bit because I think I have to as moderator. It's sort of part of the deal. And your channel on Alito. Well, I, I, again, I'm going to struggle with that. I'm going to struggle with that. Although I try to do it when I'm teaching at Berkeley because there's not, there aren't a lot of Sam Alitos in my classrooms uh, at Berkeley. Um, is it really the shadow docket that's the problem? Or is it some combination of other things? And I have in mind, for example, just building already on what you've said, then I'm going to add some additional things, the merits. That this is really just merits-driven, which is an argument you make, in part. Um, and that that's really what the problem is, that if the outcomes were outcomes that maybe you liked, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have written this book. Okay, so that's, that's part one. Mm -hmm. Part two is, put that to the side, is the real problem with what's happening in this country, in the, in the court system, lower court judges, that are issuing nationwide injunctions of policies with, without sound bases, that are, uh, that are being shopped for, this is something you've written and spoken a lot about. So there's a lot of judge shopping. Some is natural and inevitable, but there are an awful lot of cases being filed in a remote district court in Texas. Or four remote district courts. Okay, or four. There, there are a handful of judges. We, we have lots of remote district courts. There are a handful of judges that you can, you can file in that district. You know you're going to get one of them, yeah. and you know which way they're going to go. Yeah. And if... I guess the best way I would crystallize all of this is to say, assume the Supreme Court is, has a different makeup. Assume that different things had happened in history. Mm -hmm. Say the 2016 election went differently. And now we have a Supreme Court that looks extremely different than the one we have now, that is far more liberal. But we still have some judges that are issuing crazy rulings and joining the, the second Clinton administration from doing all kinds of things. Would you have a problem with the Supreme Court stepping in on its emergency docket and, and halting some of those decisions? So uh, I think that this, there's a lot there. There's a um, lot there. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's a multi-part um, question. So, so let, me, let me sort of um, – I think I can tie a couple threads together. So the first thing is um, my problem – this goes back to Justice Alito caricaturing the critiques, right? My problem is not the Supreme Court intervening. My problem is how the Supreme Court is intervening. Um, and so, you know, in the Mifepristone case last month, Justice Alito's dissent accuses Justices Kagan and Sotomayor and even Barrett of hypocrisy because he says, they say we shouldn't intervene, and yet here they're intervening. 
Um, and then he says, because they're being hypocritical, I'm going to be hypocritical too. Um, that miss, and he, he actually, like, he truncates his quote from Kagan's dissent in the SB8 case at unexplained and leaves out inconsistent and the other things she says. Um, the problem is not the intervention. There are always going to be rulings by lower courts that call out for emergency relief. That's the lesson of the Cambodia bombing case that the book right. starts with. Um, right? The problem is what, it, what is the court doing to instill faith that it's following its rules for these cases, that it's applying the standards consistently, that cases that are similarly situated except for their partisan valence are going to be resolved similarly, right? And that's where providing explanations is the best insulation against charges of partisanship, of partisan behavior. So back to, you know, would I be happier if these were coming out differently? Um, I, in the book, I talk about examples of recent decisions where I think the court got it right the wrong way and got it wrong the right way. Um, so case in point, the eviction moratorium, right? The Supreme Court blocked the Biden administration's, uh, the, or the, sorry, the Trump-Biden uh, CDC eviction moratorium um, on the shadow docket. But they did it through this eight-and-a-half-page opinion that identified the correct standard of review, applied that standard, I think, quite reasonably. And I just disagree with them about how they read the relevant statute, um, whether it provided authority or not. That's going right. to happen. That, to me, was a decision I disagreed with but was, like, by the book. Um, where we all know why, the, why it came out that way. We know what the justices were thinking. Versus, right, flip that over, the Navy SEALs vaccine mandate case, um, where there's actually a really important question about whether the court's uh, more recent protectionism of religious liberty claims applies to the military. Um, because there's a 1980s precedent called Goldman versus Weinberger that says we are especially deferential about religious claims in the military. Like, is that still good law? Kind of important for us to know that, but right? We don't. We don't. Um, the court, you know, the, the sorry, the, a, a district court in Texas had blocked the Navy SEALs vaccine mandate. The Fifth Circuit had refused to stay it. The court stays it. The court puts the mandate back into effect with no explanation. Um, I'm deeply like happy with that result and not with the process. So the, yes, the process is what matters to me. Um, would I feel that way if there were five liberal justices? Um, sure. I'd probably be writing about Roman legal history at that point. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, there's a larger point here though, and this has, this actually might be fast forwarding a bit, but like my real concern about the court right now and about how we talk about the court right now is that we're so focused on its composition right. um, that we're missing the extent to which no one is checking it, uh, right? And so part of the story the book tries to tell, I think a little bit more under the surface, is that part of how we got to where we are today is not just shifts in membership. It's not just the fact that we have a you know, strong six conservative justice majority right now for the first time in a very long time. It's the fact that the court basically is not beholden to the political branches in any way whatsoever to a degree we've never seen before. Um, and that would be a problem to me no matter who's in those seats. Um, and, it's a, and it's part of why I am the weird idiosyncratic progressive who thinks that the way to fix the Supreme Court is not to add four seats to it. Well, and that, that dives right into something that I wanted to, to ask you, which is... You guys are like, I was with you till then. And yeah, then, yeah, he lost him. Lost him. Um, where can I return the book? <laughs> what is the path forward? Yeah. Right? So it doesn't seem likely that the court is going to self-correct completely. 
especially given the narrative that you paint, assuming it's accurate, and I think it's pretty fair. Yeah. Um, so, I, I don't see them self-correcting. Is there a role for Congress? Is there a role for the public? So I think there has already been some self-correction. So I didn't get to the second part of your question, right, which was, you know, the sort of the other pressures that are causing right. the phenomenon. Um, so if you look at the last, I mean, so September 2021 is the big inflection point with SB8. And then in October 2021, there's a case that flies totally under the radar. Um, it's an application from healthcare workers in Maine to block that state's COVID vaccination mandate for healthcare workers. Um, and this is exactly the kind of application the court had been granting left and right through up to that point in 2021. And this time the court denies it. Um, and it provokes a very angry dissent from Justice Gorsuch, yep. which is joined. I think Alito joined it and Thomas noted his dissent, but didn't. So we know there were three public dissents. One of the problems is we don't actually always know the vote count. Um, but it also that that dissent in turn precipitates this concurrence from Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, that's joined by Justice Kavanaugh. And the concurrence is very weird. I mean, I would really encourage you guys to go read it. It basically says something like this. It says, just because you have met our standard for emergency relief doesn't mean we have to grant it. Um, instead, she says, we have discretion in deciding when to grant emergency relief, just like we have discretion in deciding which cases to take up in the first place. Um, by the way, I'm not sure that's true, but, you know, whatever. Um, she doesn't say what's going to cabin. She says it what's going to inform that. What's, like, you what's know, the standard? Right. She doesn't say, here's why I'm not exercising that discretion in this case. She just says, we've got discretion. Bye. Um, and what's remarkable about that is that from that point on, like there are still some bad examples. I mean, there's still the Alabama redistricting case in, April, in February 2022. Um, there's the clean water case in April. But from that point on, the court starts getting a little trigger shy. Um, and the Thomas Alito Gorsuch dissents start ramping up. So I actually think that like that was an inflection point where, you know, I mean, I think Barrett and Kavanaugh are clearly the medians when it comes to at least emergency applications. And they seem to be sort of moderating their position, not telling us why or when, but at least in practice. So in that sense, I think there already has been a reaction. And I think we should not sort of gloss over the significance of that, right? Here's a context where in response to either or both of internal pressure from their fellow justices and or public pressure from outside, the relevant justices have changed their behavior. Like that to me is actually a really big deal. Um, have they done it enough? You know, time will tell. Um, I, I, I don't think so. I think there's still some bad, e even the Mifepristone case where I thought the court got it right, I think it would have really benefited from some explanation about what the problem was in the lower court decision. Well, in the Alabama voting case. Right. Uh, no doubt. So again, right, I don't think that like the, we've solved the problem. Um, but I think there's at least some positive story there, right, about um, congression, about sort of internal pressure. As for Congress, and this, this is where I wanted to go with the question about sort of lower courts. Right. Um, mindful that there might be lower court judges in, in the room. Um, right. There might be. Um, so um, I'll, uh, Justice Alito's here. I'm already going to jail, so we're fine. Um, so the... Amanda, I, I think they're sort of, they're symptoms of a similar disease, but they're not directly connected, right? So the problem of outlier district judges issuing nationwide injunctions, that only puts pressure on the Supreme Court if you have courts of appeals that are not moderating those district courts. Um, or should I say, if you have a court of appeals that is not moderating those district courts. 
um, if that court of appeals has a number between four and six, um, hypothetically, um, right? But that's not, that's not a nationwide injunction problem by itself, right? Like what, what that really is, is that is about a disconnect between how the Supreme Court is viewing the relevant law and how lower courts are. And if only there was a way for the Supreme Court to tell lower courts that they're doing something wrong systematically and that they should be changing their behavior systematically. I, I can't think of it, but you know, when we, when it, it'll come to me maybe in the Q&A. So the, the, the point, but the point, right? The point is that the problem is not nationwide injunctions by themselves, right? The problem is sort of lower courts not cleaning up messes that certain district judges are making. And the solution to that to me is not, again, this goes back to how I'm not averse to the Supreme Court intervening, right? But how much better off would it be if in one of these cases, especially one of the cases coming from the Fifth Circuit, the Supreme Court says, guys, like, come on. Um, things they've said to the Ninth Circuit, things they've said to the Sixth Circuit in habeas cases, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, we are seeing too many of these because you, Fifth Circuit, are not doing your job. Um, and I think that would go a long way toward you know, I, I would like to talk about other reforms to the lower courts, but that's not this book. It's not, but I do think the judge shopping is a big part of the story. Yeah, I mean, it, so I think what the judge shopping does is it increases the chances that any new controversial executive branch policy is going to get to the Supreme Court quickly, um, right? Because it increases the chances that a policy is going to be subject to a nationwide injunction by an outlier district judge, that a court of appeals is going to either stay the injunction or not, and that's going to provoke an emergency application to the Supreme Court. But none of that requires the court to act summarily, right? None of that requires the court to not explain itself when it rules. I mean, just to take the Mifepristone case, for example, if the court had written three sentences um, suggesting that there was a majority of justices who believed that the government was likely to succeed on the merits, which, by the way, they would have had to find to vote for the stay right. because the plaintiffs don't have standing, um, that would have sent a message to the Fifth Circuit which instead, with no message, spent all of the oral argument last week basically uh, creating standing um, and trying to sort of rescue the plaintiff's standing. So like, that's just one example. But I think like, the problem is not just the phenomenon of shopping cases to outlier district judges. It's a broader problem that the Supreme Court already has the tools to address. So we have some, some questions from the audience. Um, and if you have some, write them on the cards. And if you're watching us online, you can put them in the chat, I believe. Um, we've got some good questions. I have a long list of additional questions, too. So if, if we run out of audience questions, we can come back to those. No, the Mets do not have enough pitching. <laughs> that, that was not one of my questions, surprisingly. But um, if we run out of time, we can talk about baseball. You know, I, I know you're quite passionate about it. Uh, one of the questions we got, uh, which is quite interesting, is why do you think that the law of, arm, law, law of armed conflict cases like Doe versus Mattis do not end up on the shadow docket? And do you think that is a good thing? I um, might extrapolate from that. Yeah. Why are we seeing only certain kinds yeah. of cases? Um, Doe versus docket? Mattis, that is quite a, that's quite a, a, a deep cut. Uh, so Doe versus Mattis is a case from a few years ago where we were holding a guy who at later, I think we later figured out he was a dual U.S.-Saudi national, mm. and we were holding him in military detention somewhere in either Syria or northern Iraq or somewhere in that. Um, so why do those cases not provoke emergency applications? Because they don't provoke injunctions. 
Um, right. So, so th- if we think about lawsuits, if I sue Amanda for damages or more likely she sues me for damages, um, <laughs> right. The, the, there's no urgency to the appeal because, you know, nothing is going to happen until the, no one's paying anybody, um, until the judgment is final, right. Until the case is over. And so the Supreme, the, the courts of appeals can take their time. The Supreme court can take its time. There's no rush. Um, Doe versus Madison is a habeas case. The guy is staying in custody, um, right, for, you know, the duration of that case. Maybe he shouldn't be, but he is. Um, an injunction is different, right, because an injunction is a coercive order that immediately requires the subject of it to take or to stop taking particular action. And so I think, you know, there's a story to tell about how there's more sort of more aggressive injunction-driven litigation these days. Um, than we've seen before. Part of the story is about how actually the demise of damages is an effective remedy against government misconduct and how injunctions have become almost preferable, which is actually, if you guys know your nerdy old law, that's backwards. Um, equity is supposed to follow the law, not the other way around. Um, right. So just the types of cases that are getting on the shadow docket are invariably one of two. Either there's a request for an injunction that was granted or denied, um, or there's an execution coming. Um, And those are the two that really sort of get us closest with maybe a sort of a periodic sort of um, interjection of election cases, right, which have the sort of also the feature of a running clock. Right. Um, So many good. It's going to be hard to get through all of these now. Um, One of the one of the questions, a couple of, of, of members of the audience have written in asking you about Supreme Court reform. And there are quite a different number of things here we could, we could talk about. I know the book is not ostensibly about Supreme Court reform, but it inevitably provokes that conversation. Yeah. And you've already said you wouldn't add justices. Are there any aspects of proposals in circulation that you would potentially grasp onto? Ethics reform, yes. age limits... Eh. Other um, things. So, I, I, to Term me, limits. right? Yeah, I mean, so the my sort of uh, the the book starts. I mean, chapter one of the book. If you haven't read it yet, you know, good job, um, right? Um, chapter one basically tells the history of the court's docket, um, which probably sounds dreadful. Um, I hope it's not. I tried to make it it's spicy. Very well done. Um, William Howard Taft makes a a, a very large cameo. Uh, I guess that pun was intended, um, <laughs> right? But um, the so. Part of why I tell that story is because I think it's really important in talking about the Supreme Court to start from the historical relationship between Congress and the court. And the historical relationship between Congress and the court was looked nothing like today. Um, Congress was regularly involved in regulating the court's docket. Congress was regularly involved in micromanaging the court's budget. Um, Till 1911, Congress literally made the justices ride around the country, um, right, riding the circuit. Not because it served any great value, but like to remind them who the boss was, um, right? The court sits in the Capitol until 1935. Like, talk about least dangerous branch. Um, So, you know, what really, part of how we get here is that Congress actually takes the reins off um, and, and stops checking the court, stops overseeing the court in ways that we had seen historically. So this is why when I come to the reform conversation, whether it's about ethics or about the court's docket or about anything else about the court, like... I want to talk about ways of reinvigorating that dynamic, 
um, regardless of who's on the court and regardless of who's in control of Congress. The notion that the institutional relationship is actually a really important part of the story. That's why the book sort of gr doesn't gravitate toward a specific set of reforms. Rather, I want to talk about reforms that are about the court's docket or about the court, you know, ethics reform is part of that story, where not where we're changing who the justices are or how long they serve, but where we're actually reinserting Congress um, into a meaningful dialogue about how the court does its job. Are there ways, I'm going to piggyback on that question in your response and, and bring in another question from the audience. Are there specific reforms, in particular to the court's procedures or docket, that if you were advising a control, you know, the Senate majority leader and the House majority leader, and they're the same party, and they might actually... I was going to say, Kevin McCarthy, Chuck Schumer, that's a, that's a not, fun conversation. Not, I, yeah, I had to put that, that condition in. And they can actually get something through... Yeah. What are you telling them? So, I mean, I think the first thing is bringing back more of the court's mandatory appellate jurisdiction. Um, and I know, I know this is something worse. So you guys are like, I have no idea what that is. Um, so until uh, 1891, um, the Supreme Court had no discretion over appeals. Um, if Congress said you have the power to hear an appeal, the court literally had to hear it. Um, didn't work so well for the court. By 1891, there were 1,800 cases on its docket. It was three and a half years behind. Everyone was miserable. Um, right. We've gone, the, the pendulum has swung too far the other way, um, right? So, we t you know, 57 cases this term, right? 50, 50, 50 versus, I don't know, 90 when you were clerking, mm -hmm. right? Versus 150 in the 1980s. And you guys might say, well, wait a second. Like, I don't want this court deciding more cases. Um, but the problem is, is that they're perfectly able to decide whatever cases they want. Um, the key is to give them cases they don't want, right? The key is to actually have them actually have to do the work that is creating these last-minute um, execution cases, right? Imagine if the court had to hear any challenge to a means of execution brought by an inmate before the inmate could be executed. That would take so much pressure off of the shadow docket. Imagine if, you know, the court had to hear at least a certain subset of direct appeals in state criminal cases. If you look at the docket, the, the category of cases that has fallen the most away from the court's historical exercise of, of authority is direct appeals in state criminal cases, um, where you have criminal defendants raising constitutional challenges to... They're not taking any of those They're cases. not taking any of them. Um, and not so long ago, that was a large chunk of the court's yeah. docket. And that has consequences not just for those individual defendants. It has lots of downstream consequences because the court is making less law in the space of criminal procedure and evidence. Um, so, you know, these are where I'd start. Um, I would talk about codifying a whole bunch of norms. Um, just one crazy example. The fact that it takes four justices to grant certiorari, it's not written down anywhere. Um, it's a norm. Uh, and one of the things I think we've learned in the last seven years is sometimes norms that we think are very hardwired are actually not that uh, uh, effective as constraints. So I would just, I would be pushing Congress to just, you know, bring back this dynamic where the court is actually at least to some degree looking over its shoulder. Um, not because I'm trying to destroy the court, not because I'm trying to delegitimize the court, but because that's how, you know, as Madison, you quoted Hamilton earlier, I, I, will, I will see your Hamilton and raise you a Madison. <laughs> um, ambition must be made to counteract ambition, right? There's plenty of ambition on the court right now. There's not that much on the other side of that equation. There's very little. Yes. Very little. And in fact, a lot of the questions that are coming in are, are geared toward what specifically should Congress be doing? And, and a lot of them are about the death penalty as well. So I'm going to start with the death penalty. Um, you mentioned four votes to grant, sir, to grant review of a merits case. When I clerked, 
1999 to 2000, I had the privilege of clerking for Justice Ginsburg. When the death penalty uh, stay, stays, uh, requests would come in in the middle of the night. The convention was not written down that if there are four votes to grant and hear the case, it takes five votes to enter a stay of execution. If four justices said, we want to hear this case, there's some, there, there is a legitimate argument in here that needs to be reviewed before this individual is executed. The fifth vote to stay the execution would come automatically. Right, the courtesy fifth. The courtesy fifth. And that has fallen by the wayside. That is a convention that has, is no longer uh, remotely guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, that, it's sticky because it's hard to... T so Chief Justice Roberts, actually, at his confirmation hearing, was in 2005, committed to the courtesy fifth publicly, um, which was given his views on the death penalty was fascinating. Um, this itself, right, was an innovation in shadow docket procedure that Justice Powell um, inaugurated in the late 1980s um, in response to some really ugly cases where the, the court grants certiorari and someone's executed while his cases pending in the right. Supreme Court. Um, so part of the problem there is that the courtesy fifth has fallen away. Part of the problem is that the fourth has fallen away. Well, um, right. And this is, you know, from a, I mean, part of why the sort of the Justice Ginsburg's death and Justice Barrett's confirmation has such procedural ramifications for the court is because of the rule of four. Um, it's now impossible for the liberals to get a case onto the court's docket by themselves. Um, it's now impossible, even if there were a courtesy fifth, for the liberals to provoke it by themselves, um, right? So the only times we've seen stays of execution lately have been where, as in the Oklahoma case, the state acquiesces in the stay, right. or where Justice Barrett has actually crossed over um, and joined the, the Democratic appointee. So there, there, I guess the point is the courtesy fifth seems to be dead, but at least partly because the fourth is missing as well in most of these cases. And, and if I can paraphrase a question that came in from the audience about the so-called machinery of death, um, is the Supreme Court and our lower federal courts equipped really to, to address these cases? No. Um, I mean, I, I, so the, the problem is, is that the, the way that the Supreme Court's jurisprudence has reconfigured the death penalty, almost none of the questions courts are asking today are actually remotely about the appropriateness of capital punishment whether in the abstract or in individual cases, um, right? The, the sort of the morality question is gone from the analysis. The sort of, you know, is this case sufficiently egregious is mostly gone from the analysis. The typical last minute case these days is either a challenge to the specific method of execution, um, which even if successful is just delaying the inevitable, um, or is some kind of belated challenge to perhaps the adequacy of representation at a prior point in the proceeding. Um, and this is something my, my colleague Jordan Steiker and his sister, Carol Steiker, who's on the faculty at Harvard, um, they have a whole book called Courting Death, um, which is about the judicialization of the death penalty that says, like, this is actually a real problem in the, in the jurisprudence that the court has undertaken. To tie this back to, to why we're here tonight, I mean, the, all of this happened through emergency applications, right? There were only a handful of merits cases in that whole period in the 1980s and 90s where the court is actually changing the grounds, changing these rules, et cetera. And now what we see is on the current court, even the Democratic appointees have basically given up, um, where not so long ago, there were justices who would perpetually dissent from any order that cleared the way or refused to block an execution. This term um, with, I think, 
two exceptions, right? Almost every order in a capital case has been over no dissents, um, at least no public dissents. And I think that's a reflection of just how little work even the justices more sympathetic to these defendants um, think they have to do. So um, I'm Mr. Happy tonight. I have, Mr. I have all this. Mr. Happy. Um, I'm going to call you that from now on. Uh, Mr. Happy. Dal- so- Dahlia calls me, the, you know, the grumpy Muppets, the, the Waldorf and what's his name, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sattler and Waldorf. Sattler, that's right. Um, okay, so, so this is an interesting question. This book is arguably an indictment of the Supreme Court. It is very critical. Okay. You regularly represent parties before the Supreme Court. Does that make you nervous to write a book like this and then go in front of these same justices and you got to count, the rule is when you're arguing in the court, you got to count to five. So you need some of these justices that you criticize. I mean, I'm 0 for 3 so far. So, uh, you know, my, my, my batting average can't get worse. Um, so I guess I, I thought about, I mean, I've, I, both in the context of the book and more generally, I mean, I've, I have become... I think, more publicly critical of the court in the last couple of years yeah. compared to, you know, six, seven years ago. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very, one of the beautiful things about the cases I take on is I have no permanent clients, right? I have, I have no one who I am obliged to represent. Um, and when I take on a case, I'm very clear that it's only for this particular part of the litigation, right? Um, and I tell the folks who I'm talking to, like, you know, I, I'm a bit of a known quantity for better or for worse. Um, but if there are justices who are voting to deny otherwise meritorious petitions because I'm on the briefs, um, I think that says more about them than Absolutely. it does about me. Um, and I will just say that, like, justices who are high on the list of people who might be mad at me. I mean, so um, we had a case, I had a petition where I was counsel of record earlier this term uh, representing Steve Donziger. Um, and the, the court denied cert, but over a dissent from Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Um, so I feel like if Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are voting for cert in a case where I'm counsel of record, I think I'm okay. And if I've lost Alito's vote, well, I never had Alito's vote. Um, but the larger point here is like, I am an academic first. Um, and my first obligation is to call it like I see it. And if that makes it harder for me in the future, um, if, if my third argument was my last one, which by the way, it was a miserable experience shouting into a speakerphone, um, <laughs> right? Um, I can live with that. It's, you know, it's, it's not worth it. And, and indeed, I mean, I think if there's a larger point here, it's that I actually think there's a problem in how the specialization of the Supreme Court bar has made it really, really hard for anyone who's a member of that select group to do anything but lionize the court. Um, and, Absolutely. And I think we saw this in the, in the Biden Supreme Court Reform Commission. You know, there was a, a statement signed by a whole bunch of members of the Supreme Court bar that was such a sort of milquetoast pushback against some of the criticisms. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think if put to the choice between academic and, and advocate, I'll take academic um, because I think it's too important to, to call it like you see it. So I agree. I agree. And I think that's what our job is. Right. And, and so when I don't know, I'm, I'm in Texas, so they're trying to get rid of my job. Um, it's great to be at UC Berkeley <laughs> um, for many reasons. Um, you know, Justice Alito has has really taken umbrage at a lot of the criticism yeah. that's been leveled at the court. And, and I, I've said this before in your presence. I think that's my job. Right. 
I think that's what legal academics who do, who follow the courts and, and do constitutional law, that's what we're supposed to do. Well, and, and you know, it's funny. I mean, um, our mutual friend Brad Snyder has a new biography of Justice Frankfurter. And one of the things I really didn't know about Frankfurter that I learned from the biography is there's a period of time in the late 20s and early 30s when Professor Frankfurter is simultaneously practicing before the court and is its harshest public critic, mm. um, just sort of, you know, devastating critiques of the, especially the conservative justices. Um, it's a different time, right? Like, you know, that, no one thought that was inconsistent, right? No one thought it was weird for Frankfurter the advocate to also be Frankfurter the critic. And I think it's, it's a sign of the sort of the problematic times we're in that there's less of that. Um, I think this translates also to the press corps, right? I mean, the, all the stories about ethics and the justices have come from folks outside of what we might think of as the traditional Supreme Court press corps. Why is that? Because I think the traditional Supreme Court press corps is a little bit too dependent upon the court to cover the court. Um, all of this sort of swims around the same principle, which is we need to do a better job. We meaning law professors, people who practice before the court, people who write about the court, people who care about the court, seeing the court as an entire institution and not just as the sum total of its merits decisions, because it's once you add that perspective that I think we see lots of problems that are not just, you know, um, Roe versus Wade being overturned or the Second Amendment being expanded. So that tees up uh, what is going to be, unfortunately, our last question. I could stay up here for hours with you. Um, and I'm going to tie together my big last question with a couple of great audience questions and, and introduce the L word, legitimacy. Your conclusion in your book is quite dramatic. You're very concerned about the court. And I guess the best way I could phrase this to try and tie together these strands is how alarmist should we as Americans be yeah. about the state of the court? And what are the absolute top of the list key concerns? Shadow docket, is it one of them? In what aspect of it? Is it the lack of, as one audience member asked, the, the explanation? Is it Ethics. We've got a couple of audience questions about that. That's obviously huge in the news right now. Is it something else? Is it the merits in part? Because public confidence in the court is at, a, I think, an all-time low. And I think the court should be concerned. I would hope the court is concerned, although I have some doubts about that. But, but how alarmed should we be? And what are the, what are the big fish here? Is it ethics? Yeah. Is it the shadow docket? Is it the merits? Is it something else? Is it everything together? Yes. Um, so um, I, I want, I, I'm going to say something perhaps uh, really controversial. I think the merits is the least of it. Um, the merits docket is where the Supreme Court, for better or for worse, is behaving the most like a court. And, and we might not like how it's behaving. We might wish other people were doing the behaving. But like, you know, to me, like the difference in the problematic nature of the justice's behavior through unsigned, unexplained orders or through the you know, ethics stories we're reading about Justice Thomas are, are up here when pe you know, poorly reasoned decisions that are still based on some kind of principle are like down here. Um, that's my biases, right? Um, it's also related to the fact that the merits docket is itself an outgrowth of the shadow docket, right? Like the court is deciding very deliberately what to put on the merits docket, how to put it on the merits docket, et cetera. 
to me, the thing that I am most concerned about um, is actually not any one of these things except for the last thing you said, which is the justices, or at least some of the justices, um, seeming refusal to accept that there's a problem. Um, that, you know, all of this would be fine, not fine, but like, you know, sort of um, salvageable in a world in which the justices were actually reflecting in some way, shape, or form that they understand that the court's long-term legitimacy is very much on the line. And at least some of them are going out and saying exactly the opposite, right? I mean, when Justice Alito gives, I, I won't call it an interview, whatever the hell that was in the Wall Street Journal, um, right? When he says, like, you know, I, these people who are attacking the court, they're the ones who are delegitimizing us, right? Like, and, and when he questions the sort of the propriety of attacking the court, like that to me is a serious problem. Um, now, to sort of back to why I'm not like totally sort of hopelessly forlorn, um, the court is a they, not an it. And, you know, I don't know that any of these conversations are going to resonate with Justice Alito or Justice Thomas or even maybe Justice Gorsuch. I, I think they are resonating with Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh and certainly with Chief Justice Roberts, um, who has probably the, I mean, not the worst job in America, but the most like, you know, the, maybe the saddest job in America. Um, I, I wouldn't switch places with him. I would. Um, <laughs> um, Hold on to your tickets. <laughs> they, you might, they might be really valuable someday. Um, I mean, I, you know, let's, let's be honest. Um, but, you know, I think that this is why I think we're at a really interesting moment for the court. Um, and, and what I find so interesting about this moment is there are lots of ways in which I think the court could start trying to restore some semblance of faith um, in the institution. And at least for now, the signs are not necessarily there yet. And so I haven't given up. I don't think like we're at the precipice and about to fall in. But I think this is actually a really important moment institutionally for the court, not because of what happened last term, not because of Dobbs or Bruin, but because a court that is both unchecked and unwilling to be checked is a court that's going to have a really hard time in the long term um, playing the role we want it to play in our constitutional system. That is a perfect note to end on. I highly commend this book. It is an extraordinary book, and it is uh, especially extraordinary for taking procedure and translating it for an audience that need not have gone to law school. Um, it is just really a powerful and important book. And I've already told him I can't wait for the second book, which is going to go through all the fixes that we need, many of which we've discussed tonight. I I'm going to nope. take a break no, first. He, he's going ha to hang out with his kids for a little bit, but then no doubt he's going to follow it up with another blockbuster. I highly recommend this book. I want to thank you uh, and, and specifically thank Professor Stephen Vladek, legal, legal scholar, professor, political analyst, dad, Mets fan, and author of The Shadow Docket for joining us today. Um, I'd like to thank the audience for visiting the Commonwealth Club and for participating um, and, and watching us also online. If you would like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Um, and most important of all, for those of you who are here with us tonight, the author of this fabulous book will be available shortly out there to sign copies of The Shadow Docket if you would like one. So good evening, and thank you uh, for coming. We hope to see you at the club again, and thank you in particular, Steve. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.